Galatians chapter 5. Let's begin reading in verse number 16. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. I'm going to try to read this a little bit slower than sometimes I have a tendency to read because I really want it to impact you. Paul says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, as we said last week, as we follow the simple little outline that we've given uh, several times throughout this Bible study, uh, we find ourselves in the practical portion of the book of Galatians. The first two chapters present to us the personal portion of the book of Galatians. Paul is talking about what the Lord has done in his life, the grace of God in his life, uh, some things that have taken place uh, within the church life concerning the grace of God and some decisions that were made, or rather I guess we should say the mind of God was sought and obtained on some matters. And then the next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, present to us the doctrinal portion of the book of Galatians. Uh, now keep in mind, these are, this is not a rigid outline. You'll find doctrine and practical application in the first two chapters and in the last two and so on and so forth. But by and large, what Paul does in chapters 3 and 4, is sets forth to show us how that grace is the only means of justification, it's ever only the, been the only means of justification. That by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That grace is not God's audible to man's failure. But that grace has always been part of the providential plan and workings of an almighty God. How that there can be no other way that a person could be saved than by grace. How that it's unbiblical to believe that our works could in any way attribute to our salvation in any way. And so he sets forth this great doctrine of grace. And if we could put it this way, the exclusivity of that doctrine. That that is the only doctrine. And uh, in a world... Uh, of, uh, of religious variance, and you know it's been said before there was a time when America was the great melting pot, uh, and now it's the great salad dish. And uh, what's meant by that is there was a time when men, when they came to this country, 
Uh, it's not that they uh, cast off necessarily all of the culture that they had obtained from their home country, but uh, as I believe it was Teddy Roosevelt said one time, he said that a, a man when he becomes an American can only have one flag. Not one flag above other flags, but one flag. And if he's willing to take the American flag, then he can be an American citizen, but he must take our flag. Now we live in a day uh, of sectarianism and a polarized political environment where men don't want to give up their flags. They still want to uh, have the same nationalistic mentality for their home country that they've always had, and yet come and, and live and take part and uh, have the benefits of living in our country. That's un-American. Uh, all of the folks that talk about, and I'll get off the soapbox here in a minute, but uh, all the folks that, that you know talk about this great melting pot and how that immigration is the backbone of the American dream, I'll agree with them, uh, but it's legal, proper, American immigration is the backbone of the American dream, and not the invasion uh, that is illegal at its very core, the illegal invasion that's taking place in our country, uh, that's not American in any way, shape, fashion, or form. And in the very same way, uh, Paul is uh, showing us how that in a day when the religious atmosphere is one of a religious salad bowl, so to speak, and uh, where everyone has their own way that they believe they're going to get to heaven, how that grace is the only means. There can be no other way. And I believe today that we can find more clarity in the book of Galatians than maybe ever the church has been able to. Uh, one thing you'll find to be a universal quality of every false religion uh, in this world is that they all depend upon the good works of, of their followers. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it is an Eastern religion of mysticism. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it is an uh, African religion of paganism. It doesn't matter if it's a European religion of Romanism. They all depend upon the good works of those that are adherents uh, to that religion. If I do this, then I'll get to heaven. Uh, I'm thankful that Calvary is not about what I do, it's about what He's done. And I'm thankful it's not up to me to finish it. He hung on the cross and said, it is finished. And so Paul sets forth these doctrinal principles. And then in chapters 5 and 6, we have the practical application of these doctrinal truths. Every doctrine of the Word of God has a practical application. Uh, lots of folks think about doctrine, they think they see nothing but just fussing and fighting and nitpicking and so on and so forth. And certainly doctrine can be that way if it's not practically applied. I, you can give me any doctrine in the Word of God, and, uh, and the Bible will give us a practical impact that that has on our everyday lives. And that's why it's profitable, as the Word of God says, all Scripture is, uh, is profitable for doctrine. Uh, it's all inspired and it's all profitable. And so, as we have read in the beginning of chapter number 5, and we studied last week, we saw how that the sanctification of the believer is an exercise of the Holy Ghost in the lives of the believers, and is not in any way connected to our own good works. Now, let me say to you that we have been talking in chapters 3 and 4 about the difference between law and grace. Law and grace. And as far as dispensations and doctrines and covenants go, that's a very proper conversation to have. But the conversation is being shifted now to something different in chapter 5. We're not as much focusing on law or grace, but rather we are focusing on the product of those two things. We are focusing on spirit or flesh. 
As it relates to our standing in Jesus Christ, the question is of law and of grace. But as to our standing for Jesus Christ, it's a question of spirit or flesh. Paul has got through telling us how in chapter number 5 he speaks of, uh, in uh, verse number 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Verse 6 says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. He has moved the conversation beyond the point of justification and salvation. And now he's talking about how we live our lives. And he's saying it's not going to help you to be circumcised or to be uncircumcised, any of those things apart from your faith in Jesus Christ. The only thing that can sanctify you is that which has saved you, which is grace, the grace of God applied by the Holy Spirit of God. And so I want us to focus on a few things tonight, and I've, just, I, and I've not done this throughout the whole series, but I jotted down a few statements this evening because I wanted my thoughts to be clear and concise. He's going to begin talking about where, uh, as J. Vernon McGee used to say, where we put it in shoe leather, where the rubber beats the road. What does all this mean for you and me? Here we've spent, I don't know, 37 weeks, it seems like, studying the book of Galatians. What does it all mean? What do we do with it? Do we just stick it like a feather in our hat? in our theological tool belt and say, well, now I know something I didn't know, and go home and say, well, that was fun? Or does this change the way that we live? Well, in verse 16, it's clear that Paul is telling us that this should apply not only to our wisdom, but to our walk. This should apply not only to our intelligence or to our academics, but to our actions and to our lifestyle. And he begins by saying in verse number 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Verse 18 says, But if ye be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Can I say that first off, Paul is teaching us that the Spirit of God accomplishes the ambition of the law. Now, I'm aware that the law was given not to justify us, but to, to show us guilty before God and so on and so forth. But for these Galatians, their understanding of the law is that the law is given so that if I obey it, I'll be righteous. That's what they believe. They believed if I, if I will obey this, you remember the two issues uh, that were in question uh, with the discussion that was posed for the Galatian believers there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. The two things the Judaizers were telling the Galatians were this, that you have to be circumcised to be saved, and that you have to keep the works of, law, of the law to remain saved. And so for them, the impression they've been given is, how do I become righteous? How do I become a good Christian? How do I become what God expects me to be? And their belief had been that the only way that that can happen is through the keeping of the law. Now let me say to you tonight that most of us, I don't think, are guilty of keeping the Old Testament law. Uh, most of us are not tempted to keep the Old Testament law. We don't run in the uh, theological circles that would put pressure on us to keep the Old Testament law. We're not Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, and so uh, there's really no pressure to keep the Old Testament law. So how does this apply to us? 
Let me say that legalism for the Galatians took took form in the expectation and pressure to keep the Old Testament law. But for you and I, legalism rears its ugly head through the expectation and the pressure for us to do anything for man's sake rather than for God's sake. Now, it's the will of God that we love each other, that we get along, that we help each other. And so there'll be times that you do something for somebody else, but your motivation ought be to do it for the Lord. There's going to be plenty of times you're going to do things that you don't want to for other people. And, and Paul taught this principle when he, when he talked about things being offered unto idols. And he said, if meat would make my brother stumble, I will abstain from meat. But the reason Paul did this, he said, I am become all things to all men that I might win some. His purpose was to be pleasing unto God. He wasn't doing that to try to win favor with a believer that was maybe weak in their uh, mentality or mindset. He wasn't doing that to try to please them or try to keep up appearances or to fit in or to be accepted of them. Paul said, I'm judged of no man. Uh, Paul understood that God expects us to live in a circumspect way because for the benefit of those that are around us. But the reasoning and the motivation ought to be for the glory of God and to the pleasing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, not, not simply so that we'll be accepted of other people. You're going to have a lot of people in your Christian life that because they're too lazy to disciple, instead they're going to try to demand a lifestyle from you. Let me say that again so you really, you really soak that in. There's a lot of preachers out there that are too lazy to disciple, so instead they just try to demand a lifestyle out of you. You say, what's the difference, preacher? The difference is one is accomplished through the patient outworking of the love of God in the life of another person, taking interest in them, helping them to see the truths of the Word of God, to be encouraged in serving the Lord, to grow in their spiritual walks. The other is accomplished through the means of manipulation and bullying. And there's a lot of preachers because they're not interested in the time that it takes to disciple folks, and it takes a lot of time. Let me give you an example. How many disciples did our Lord have? I, th I think somebody, I, I got about 12 different answers out there. How did that happen? Somebody say it out good and loud. I think I just misheard you. How many disciples did he have? 12. Uh, one of them was what? A devil. One of them was a devil. So essentially we could say that the Lord had 11 disciples because the Lord knew what was in Judas. So our Lord could have picked 1,100, but He didn't. He picked 11. Now He's the perfect Son of God, right? He could do anything. He doeth all things well. He could do anything that He liked. He could have chose 1,100, 11,000, or 11 million. But He chose 11. And uh, he, he usually only saw them, what, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, right? It's the only time you ever saw him? No. No, he spent every moment with him. See, discipleship is hard work. To take an interest in the life of somebody. Can I give you a word that I identify with the idea of discipleship? And it's the word withness. He was always with them. To take a personal interest in someone's life for the glory of God and for their Christian walk, that is discipleship. And to try to help them along the way, to be that person whose number they dial in the middle of the night uh, when the devil is assaulting their mind, to be that person whose number they call when they found a scripture they don't understand, that's discipleship. To be that person that calls their number when they've not been at church, not to bully them or browbeat them, but just to let them know you love them and you missed them and you're praying for them, that's discipleship. To lead by example, that, that's discipleship. 
And uh, our Lord chose 11 instead of 11,000, but every one of those 11 went on to do something for Jesus Christ after he spent three and a half years with them. So I, I, I say all that to say that I'm not dismissing the importance of our testimony on others and their testimony on us. And Paul is not dismissing that either, by the way. But what he is showing us is that through the Spirit of God, we can do what they perceived the law was meant to do. They thought the law was given so that they could become righteous. You'll have lots of folks that through their pressures and expectations, they're going to make you think, if you'll just do what I tell you to do, then you'll be right. Can I say you can do all the right things and still be wrong? There's plenty of folks who do all the right things and are still wrong. Uh, it's not uncommon. You've, I'm sure, had this in your church. We've had it in ours. Uh, someone that has been in church for 20 and 30 years sometime up and gets saved. All that time they were playing games. All that time they were just imitating, just living the life that was set before them for them to live. And what a shame it is on, on us that we as Christians do not convey the Christian life in a better way than that. That we could mislead somebody to think that if they just dress how we expect, talk how we expect, be where we expect them to be, that that's all that God requires of them. But that's how the Galatians felt about the law. And that's, that's the application that there is for us. If we'll just do these things, we'll be righteous. But Paul tells us that that is not how righteousness is accomplished. Uh, notice what it says in verse number 16. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's very interesting to me. Because as believers, it ought to be our desire to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It ought to be our desire to live righteously and to do the right thing. But Paul teaches us here... That it's not a matter, now listen carefully, because I, I want to say this carefully so you really grasp what I'm about to say. It's not a matter of abstinence from sin, it's a matter of obedience to the Spirit. Obedience to the Spirit is what produces abstinence from sin. You know what we have in many of our churches today? We have abstinence from sin devoid of obedience to the Spirit. Or could we put it this way? We have a form of godliness denying the power thereof. It's only through obedience to the Spirit of God that we can become what we need. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to try to put this as plain as I know how. You say, preacher, what do you mean? That means that every day of your life is, is lived and ordered according to prayer, according to the, to the leading of the Holy Ghost in your life. So many of us, the Spirit of God would lead us in the small things if we were obedient in many of the big things. The Spirit of God has the capacity to lead us in the minute of life, not just in, in that which is, is, is great in magnitude. And sometimes this is our impression of the Christian walk. Our impression is, okay, God gives us a certain uh, standard to live by, and we live by that standard, and if anything tough comes up, we'll check with the big man, and he'll let us know what to do. Now be honest now, that's how many of us live. We know what to do, we know how to act, we know how to behave. And our conversation with the Spirit of God is basically null and void except when we come into trouble. But Paul says that's not how righteousness is accomplished. Righteousness is accomplished through a consistent walking in the Spirit of God. Some of us quit because we start out trying to run in the Spirit of God. Some of us never build momentum because we want to crawl in the Spirit of God. But walking denotes the idea of consistent, steady, progressive movement. Something that is paced something that is persistent, and something that is purposed. 
And it's only through that kind of obedience to the Holy Spirit of God that we can abstain from doing those things which displease God. Now, we're all aware that nobody's perfect. If we want to turn to Romans chapter number 7 and read about how we're all imperfect, we can do that. But we're not talking about living a life of perfection because we're all flesh and bone. We all sin. We all do unrighteously. There will always be times that we're disobedient to the Holy Ghost. I don't care who you are. There will always... Paul himself, uh, you know, we all like to quote that famous verse where he says, you know, but none of these things move me, neither count on my life so dear. But truthfully, when Paul said that, he was out of the will of God. The Spirit of God had tried to tell him four or five times not to go to Jerusalem. And when Paul was speaking of none of these things, one of those things was the witness of the Holy Ghost in his life that wouldn't move him. So I don't care who you are, you're going to make mistakes. But it should not derail us from a pursuit of consistent obedience to the Spirit of God. This is so, there is such a vacuum of the presence of the Spirit of God in the everyday life of the believer in the church today. I mean, I, I almost tremble because I, I just can't convey to you how dire of a problem this is. We have all learned the song and dance. And all we're doing is singing and dancing, but we're not walking. We've all learned how to put on the mask. And we've all got, we're all doing things out of habit that we ought to be doing out of obedience. And it can only be done out of obedience if a command has been given. And a command can only be given if there is a conversation. If there is a communication, why did you get up and go to church yesterday? Did you do it because that's what you do? Or did you do it because the Holy Ghost woke you up and said, go to the house of God? Now, I'm not saying that you should wait around for God to hit you on the head with a ton of bricks. And I'm not saying that simple things that God has laid forth in His Word, that we should always try to push God and press God and ask for a sign in the heavens before we'll do it. I'm not implying that, but I'm saying there's a danger in learning to live the Christian life without Christ. And that's where so many of us are at. It's through obedience to the Spirit that these things take place. Not just through saying, this is the standard, so I'll live this way and everything will be alright. Well, it might be alright with your church family, with your, with your physical family. It might be alright with your friends. It might be alright with, uh, you know, the people in your life that you look to as being an encouragement in the Lord. But that doesn't mean that that's what God expects of you. It's through obedience to the Spirit of God that abstinence from sin is produced. Look what it says in verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary. I don't know if you mark in your Bible. If you don't, I understand. But if you do, underscore that word contrary. These are contrary, the one to the other. So that you cannot do the things that you would. Now let me say to you that that word lust found in verse 17 is not lust in the negative connotation. You say, how do you know that? Because it says the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So where it's saying lust, it's not speaking of lust in a filthy or an unclean or immoral way, but it's speaking of the desire. The desire. The spirit desires that which is contrary to the flesh, and the flesh desires that which is contrary to the spirit. Do you know it does not have to be immoral to be of the flesh? It doesn't have to be immoral to be of the flesh. You can do the right thing in the flesh and still be wrong. You can do the right thing in the flesh and still be wrong. Or can I say it in a way that you might be more familiar with? You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Sure, many of us do it. We 
should all, we, we all have to keep our lives constantly in check. I, I said, uh, I don't know if it was yesterday morning or last night, I said sometime yesterday, and by the way, this don't help my case as a pastor, I'm just being honest with you, I, I, if I wanted to keep people coming to church here through bullying and browbeating and manipulating, uh, I'd be like a lot of them out there, but I'm not interested in that, because then, then we're not a church of followers of Christ, we're a church of followers of me, and that's not going to help anyone. But it would do us all well to examine why we come through those double doors. It would do us all well to examine why we open that Bible and read it. Well, I'm not saying there aren't times we do things out of duty. But what's the motivation of that duty? Is it that we play the game, that we do this is what people expect of us? Or is it that we know that's what God expects of us? Don't misunderstand the word surrender for implying a lack of difficulty. There's times when it's difficult to surrender. You say, why is it difficult to surrender? Because they're contrary one to the other. You have two natures within you if you've been born again. You say, preacher, I don't, then you need to be born again. If you're born again, you have two natures within you. You have a spiritual man, you have a carnal man or a natural man. And those two things quarrel with each other. They're contrary to each other. They will never agree. See, the problem is we gauge the righteousness of everything by the substance that it produces and not by the motive that drives it. And so we think that if we do the right thing, regardless of what the motive is, God is pleased with it. But God looks not only on the outward, but He looks on the inward man. And he looks on the heart. If you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, God's not pleased with that. You ever wonder why the Lord says that the Lord loveth a cheerful giver? Because God doesn't need your bank account. God needs you, and He knows that if you're like most of us, that's how He'll get you. A cheerful giver. To do all things with joy. To rejoice in, in all things. To rejoice in everything. To be doing things in a cheerful manner. And this is something I believe that is divorced from our demeanor. There's some folks have a good demeanor, some have a bad demeanor. But I don't think it has anything to do with your demeanor. I believe it has to do with your attitude. Why are you doing what you're doing? And with what spirit do you do it? I'm fascinated by this phrase. So that you cannot do the things that you would. I've wrestled with that. I, I, I have wondered whether it's saying that you cannot, as a spiritual person, do the things that you would because of your flesh... Or if it's saying that you as a fleshly person cannot do the things that you would because of the Spirit. I've come to the conclusion that betwixt those two, the answer is yes. As a Christian, we can't operate totally in the flesh and not have joy. But we can't do it and have joy. We can't do it and have peace because the Spirit of God resides within us and our spiritual man is awakened. We can't operate totally in the Spirit without there being a conflict because the natural man is still alive. And so that gives us a reason why it seems like there is such a conflict. And so oftentimes we get so focused on the outward expression or the evidence 
of our actions, that we neglect that inner conflict that is taking place. And I believe that's one of the great deceptions of Satan, in that he is willing to let us do the right thing for the wrong reasons, because though it may have benign consequences here, one day we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so much of what we've done that we were so proud of is going to burn up in the judgment fires of God when God strikes a match and lays it to it, and it's all wood, hay, and stubble. Why you do what you do matters. May not matter to you, it may not matter to your church, may not matter to those around you, but it sure matters to God. So that you cannot do the things that you would. This speaks to the mutual exclusivity of the spirit and of the flesh. Every one of us, with every action that we uh, make, with every thought that we have, it is either of the spirit or it is of the flesh. It cannot be both. It has to be of the one or it has to be of the other. I'm convinced that many of us, and I don't mean many of them either, I mean many of us, I mean, I, I mean me included, many of us would be gravely shocked to find out what God thinks about much of our Christian walk. Not because it's unholy or immoral, because some of you, I guarantee you, that's where your mind went. Your mind probably immediately thought, well, preacher, I've not got anything to hide. No, but that's the problem, is we don't hide it. We're not aware of it. Oftentimes, we're not ashamed of it. So many of the things that we do, we just do it to please other people. And that doesn't bother us, because they're pleased with us. (laughs) When it should bother us. It should bother us that we have lowered our standard. What, What greater person is there to please? than the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're trying to please anybody other than Him, you're trying to please someone lesser than Him. You've degraded your calling and your actions. These are mutually exclusive one of the other. They cannot consist together and be synonymous in their purpose. Look at verse number 18. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now here again we have this word law is given. I'm very interested in the use of this word law in verse number 18. I've thought good and long and hard about what this word is being implied here. If you're, under the, if you're led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. And something we have to understand is that the only way that the life of Christ is manifest through us is through the obedience to the Holy Spirit. Anything that we're doing in the energy of our own flesh comes from us. You remember what Christ said in the book of John? He said, Whatsoever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatsoever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Hallelujah. And so, the source of this matters. When we, through obedience to the Holy Spirit, are doing things, then it's really not us, it's the Lord doing them through us and in us. Or could I put it the way Paul put it just about two chapters ago, three chapters ago, where he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the only way, you see, you can cut a vine, you can cut a branch off of the vine, and for a little while it will still look healthy even though the life of that vine is not being manifest through that branch. 
Its leaves will hold for a little while. The fruit will stay on it for a little while. won't grow, mind you. But what's already there will stay there. A lot of us, we got saved. And in, that, in the naivete and ignorance of our early Christian life, we didn't know we were supposed to do it our own way yet, so we just did it the Lord's way. He was so real to us, right? I mean, we just got up from an altar. We'd just been to Calvary. And we walked in the power of the Spirit of God, and there was some leaves, and there was some fruit. And then somewhere along the line, we cut ourselves off. And the life of Christ is not being manifest through us. And there's a little fruit left, and there's a little leaves left, but there's nothing new, and there's nothing growing. Our Christian life is stagnant, because we have forsaken that, that life power and, and life force, which is Christ. Now, I'm not, I, I sound like a modernist calling him a life force. He's a person, but you understand what I mean. That life through us, through our relationship with Christ and obedience to the Holy Ghost. Now, wait, let's stop a minute. You and I, in our flesh, can be judged of the law, because that's what the law was given for, was to reveal the flesh for what it was, to regulate the flesh from being worse than what it would be, to uh, reveal to us God's standard of righteousness, to lead us to Christ. The flesh is wholly under the jurisdiction of the law. By the same token, I'm going to get into trouble, but this needs to be said either way. A lot of these preachers out here that set up that standard, they do it to try to wrench conformity out of a congregation that by and large is devoid of worship and of the Spirit of God and of the life of Christ being manifest through them. Can I say to you, I'm not scared of the Holy Ghost. I'm not scared of Him. If you're following Him, He's not going to tell you anything different than He tells me. He's not going to tell you anything different than He tells me. I'm not scared of the Holy Ghost in worship. I'm not, because the Holy Ghost, he's, He's no producer of foolishness or nonsense. If it comes from the Spirit of God, it'll be right. I mean, I don't care if someone's doing a, a flat-footed backflip. If it's from the Holy Ghost, it's right. And a lot of the jibber-jabber that goes on in the charismatic movement, a lot of the nonsense and foolishness, that's not of the Spirit of God because God's not the author of confusion. And by the way, that statement was given in the context of worship in the church, too. That God's not the author of confusion. So I'm not scared of the Holy Ghost. But what a lot of people can't grasp and, and can't handle is that if he's in control, I can't be in control. You see, if he's controlling the congregation, that means the pastor ain't controlling the congregation. And some folks just have a problem with control. I don't want to just wrench conformity out of a group of people by a standard that I've set up and, and puffed up and inflated to make people think that if they live that way, they've gotten gained my approval. I'm not interested in that, because that's not going to avail you at the judgment seat of Christ. No, see, it's only through obedience to the Holy Spirit of God. That's why people set up, and by the way, you keep in mind, I'm, I'm not opposed to standards. But when that standard supersedes the preeminence of Christ in a place. And I'm not saying that that standards are necessarily going to lead us down a road of ungodliness. Uh, On the contrary, many times they do hold that at bay. But sometimes those things can take place. They can take the throne away from Jesus Christ where people's attitude is, if you just keep this standard, you're okay. No! You're not okay until you're okay with Jesus Christ. You're not okay until then. 
Till your life has been submitted to His government, you're not okay. And a lot of times they they puff up that standard because it's a means of manipulation and control and propaganda. And they do that because they've got a group of people that are operating in the energy of the flesh. They're doing it to please that person that's in authority. And they're doing it because they don't have any spiritual life of their own. And guess what? That works. Do you know why that works? Because the flesh is under the jurisdiction of the law. You know why the flesh surrenders itself to the jurisdiction of the law? Because the flesh can then turn around and boast. And say, look at me and who I am. And the righteousness that I have accomplished. But now wait a minute. If we've crucified the flesh and the affections and lusts thereof, and if what I'm doing, I'm doing not out of the origin of my own wisdom or strength, but only because the Spirit of God is leading me, then it's no longer I, but Christ. Now, Christ put himself under the subjection of the law once. And he lived perfectly, he lived righteously, he was without sin, without spot, without blemish. Then he took that righteousness, and he stepped into your shoes and mine, and he died as a sinner for you and I, and took our sin debt. Now that righteousness that is perfect and sinless and spotless has been placed upon you or I. We are in Christ. And Christ is not subject under the law. Why? He's met the conditions of the law. He has, he has accomplished and fulfilled every portion of the law. So now if I'm doing it because the Spirit of God is leading me to, I'm not under the law. Why? Because Christ is not under the law. In fact, could I put it this way? I'm not under the law. I'm over the law. You know, it's been said before that the law, uh, that grace was not given so that we could live out from under the law, but so that we could live above the law. And just as Christ is not subject to the law, because He has fulfilled the law, and His righteousness is that which the law was, was modeled after, He's not under the law, so when I do things under the obedience of the Spirit of God in my life, I'm not under the law either. I've subjected myself to a higher law, to a higher court system. This is the means and process of sanctification. Verses 19 through uh, 23, and I'm not going to give you an overview of each of these. That's not my intention or purpose here. It would serve you well to sit down sometime and, and, and learn what all of these things are. But there's something uh, I feel more important that I want to get on to. It says in verse 19, Now the works of the law, or works of the flesh, are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, uh, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, uh, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. I want you to notice uh, two qualities very quickly. First off, I want you to notice that it says, now the works of the law, or the works of the flesh, are manifest. Each of these individually is a work of the flesh. Now, there's many other works of the flesh. You say, how do you know that? Because he says uh, there in verse number 21, and such like. So there's many others. 
Well, when he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, it does not say, but the fruit of the Spirit are. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. When he speaks of the works of the flesh, it says, works of the flesh are, meaning they in a plurality. But the fruit of the Spirit is, it's speaking of it in a singular nature. It's been said before this way, and I think this is a very apt theological understanding of it, that it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. So, in other words, it's not saying just love, just joy, just peace, just long-suffering, just gentleness, just goodness, just faith, just meekness, just temperance. But where the Spirit of God is at work, all nine of these things will be manifest. All nine of them. You see, the flesh can fake a few, but only through the Spirit of God can all nine of these things be manifest in the life of the believer. There's something else I want you to notice, and it's the two defining words that are used for each of these categories. It says, now the works of the flesh. Now what are works? We know what works are. Works are actions that I perform. Typically, works are separated from their, their motivation. Uh, you know, and, and I, I'll explain a little further here in a moment, but if you have somebody, we're wanting to get our uh, air conditioning unit worked on uh, here, and, and we're needing to get that done. I don't care why that AC man works on our unit. I really don't. Uh, I could probably ask him why he does what he does, but I really don't care. As long as he fixes it, that's all that matters, see. The origin is irrelevant. I don't care where he comes from. I don't care what he thinks about politics. I don't care what the motivation for him getting up for work is in the morning. I don't care if he's got a hundred mouths to feed or one mouth to feed. As long as the work gets done, that's all that matters. Because that's the way works are. That work is, is an isolated thing. It doesn't matter. But that's not what these qualities from the Holy Spirit are called. They're not called works, they're called fruit. Now, a fruit very much is determined by its origin, don't you think? Let's, we're going to do, a, we're going to do a, a, a test here, okay? You didn't know you was going to be tested, but get ready. All right? Where does an orange come from? An orange tree, that's good. That's good. Where does an apple come from? Apple tree, very good, very good. Where does a peach come from? Do apples come from peach trees? Do peaches come from orange trees? No, you see, the quality of fruit is directly defined by the origin that it's come from. Fruit is something that is very much connected to the origin and motivation of its growth. Fruit is something that is vitally connected to the source of its life. Fruit is something that's the outgrowth of the life of something else. Somewhere along down through the ages, probably in the first chapters of Genesis, I would believe, uh, God, in one form or another, and I don't know how many trees existed at that time, I don't know if God, you know, created California orange trees and Florida orange trees, or I don't know what happened in that way, but somewhere along the line, life began, you understand? God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible teaches. I believe He did that literally. I don't believe that's an allegory for evolution or, or a Big Bang Theory or anything like that. I believe God literally did that because I, I'm a literal, biblical Christian. Uh, but ever since then, that life has been perpetuated, has it not? You 
see, the fruit that grows on that tree is directly connected to the life of that tree itself. If the tree's dead, the fruit won't last very long. These things can only be manifest through the life of Christ in us and through us, through the obedience to the Spirit of God. True biblical love is the outgrowth of our obedience to the communication of the Spirit of God to our heart. You might be able to do something that seems very loving, but it's not biblical love unless it's come from the Holy Ghost. You may have an imitation of joy. Oh, Leonard Ravenhill used to always say that, that uh, entertainment is the devil's counterfeit for joy. I believe that's true in many churches today. I believe that's why so many people have to be entertained. It's because they're unregenerate and they don't have any joy and they've got to fake it. You may be able to get away with happiness, but you won't have real joy, except it's birthed from your careful, consistent obedience to the Spirit of God. Don't expect what I'm teaching on tonight to be easy. Don't expect that you're going to leave out of here and all of a sudden, like turning a switch on, okay, I'm going to be obedient. You know what your flesh is going to do? You're going to go out of here and you're going to say, Lord, I want you to help me to pray about the things that are taking place in my life. Lord, I want you to help me to be obedient. And you're going to get out in the car and you're going to click that radio on and it's going to leave your mind. Or you're going to get home, click the TV on, or pick up a book, or stub your toe. Who knows what? But it'll be a battle is what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's easy. And submission and surrender is not always an easy thing. We think of surrender as someone just, you know, waving the flag, throwing their hands up, and giving up. And in a sense it is, but because you have two natures within you, when you give up to one nature, you're going to have to fight back to another nature. When you give up to the Spirit of God, you're going to have to fight against the flesh. And only through that obedience can these things be manifest. Only through that obedience. That's the only way to be the kind of Christian. If you're not praying and talking to God to get the mind of God about things, you can't do those things correctly. Because it's only through obedience we can be what God expects us to be. Again, I'm aware there's things that God has settled in our hearts. We know the right thing to do. We're doing it for the Lord because He's settled that in our heart. I'm not saying that we have to go around here and walk on eggshells all the time with whether we make a left turn or a right turn, whether we take this way to get home or that way to go home. But understand that the only way you'll become the Christian God expects you to be is through that communication with the Holy Spirit and the obedience to Him that should naturally follow it. Look what it says in verse number 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Now, let me say that I believe that there can be two applications of this verse. One is a dispensational application. If you've been saved, theologically, you are Christ. And on Calvary, your flesh was crucified. But I don't believe that's what Paul is talking about here. You see, I believe what Paul is saying here, can I just put it in, in sort of the language we might use? Can I, can I just put it, can I, can I give you the, the you know, the, the Toby Weber version, don't string me up, but I'm just, the way I, I would say it if I was just talking to somebody, I would probably communicate it to you in this way. Because notice it says the affections and the lusts. Not every Christian, and I would say, in fact, most Christians have not crucified the affections and the lust. But can I tell you what I think Paul's trying to say here? I think Paul's trying to say it's not about how much of him you've got. It's about how much of you he's got. They that are Christ, they that...
that have given themselves to Jesus Christ, that have surrendered their life to Him, that have bowed the knee before His authority, those that God has every bit of them, I was preaching yesterday and we talked about how that there's a way you can say yes to God and still be saying no. I'll give you an example of that. When I was growing up, sometimes I would get this idea that my parents would bargain with me. I don't know where I got that idea. Maybe from watching TV. The kids on TV had a very different home life than I had. The kids on TV, they'd ask for money and they'd get it. I never saw, I never saw a single kid on TV ever have to mow the yard. They had a very different life than I had. And sometimes I'd get it in my head that I could bargain with my parents. And they'd say, do this. And I'd say, well, how about if I do this? And you know what that was? It was disobedience. You see, I was finding a way to say yes and still say no. And so many of us, we're so proud of ourselves because we've said yes to God in some things, but we're ignoring the fact that we've said no to God in a lot of things. So if God has all of you, Every bit. Not just part. If God has all of you, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. I've got one more statement that I've jotted down. Let me give it to you. We see that the Spirit is the appropriate means of living for the believer. If we live in the Spirit, we ought also to walk in the Spirit. Is it not a natural thing that if we've been born again in the Spirit of God, that we should live in the power of that same Spirit of God? Is that not a natural thing? Is that not what we see in, in, in life? I mean, I, I was born, when I was born, I was born as a, as a, a, a white child. That's what I was born as. At no point did I become an Asian girl. Right? I didn't become, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't turn into a horse, didn't turn into a fish. You see, I'm the same thing that I was born as. A little bigger, a little fatter, a little hairier, a little uglier. But I'm the same thing. Does it not make sense that if you were born of the Spirit of God, that God expects you to walk in the Spirit of God? Does that not make sense? How did you get born again? Somebody tell me, what was, what was the first step to you getting born again? What was the first thing that happened? Somebody holler something out. We'll see if you're right. Realizing you were lost. What's another word for that? Conviction. How did you get convicted? Who convicted you? The Holy Ghost convicted you. Who told you you were naked, as was asked in the garden? Who told you you were a sinner? I've given the illustration a hundred times. Because I, when, I, when I saved, I was in my room on my own. Nobody was in there. I was, I was on my way to a devil's hell. Mom and Dad were taking a nap. What does that tell you? And, and I, it was a Monday afternoon. It was 7.30 in the evening. They were taking a nap. I was, I was by myself in my room. And the Spirit of God told me I was lost. Now, He didn't say it audibly. He didn't part the heavens. He didn't walk through the bedroom door. But almost like a light shone from heaven, just in a moment, I knew I was lost. He told me that. By the same token, what was the next step? Somebody hollered something out. What was the next step? Ask Him. Ask Him. Believe. To put your faith, your trust in Him. 
He showed you you were a sinner. You made your mind up that you didn't want to be a sinner anymore. You didn't want to die and go to hell. So, Lord, I'm not going to trust in me. I'm going to trust in you. And so you asked him, well, how would you know to do that? The Spirit of God told you. And you say, well, but preacher, it was the Word of God. Yes, it was the Word of God. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But who gave us the Word of God? Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. How did, what happened next? You got saved. That's what happened next. How did you get saved? You were born again of the Spirit of God. Baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. You see, every single component, every single moment of your salvation experience was birthed by the Holy Spirit of God. That's how we started this thing. Don't you think that's how we continue it? If that's the only way life could be breathed in your soul when you were dead in trespasses and sins, the only way God could quicken you was through the Spirit of God. If the words that Christ speaks are spirit and are life, if uh, the letter of the law killeth but the Spirit giveth life, then the only way that you can continue to live in the power of that life is through obedience to the Spirit of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you'd lose your salvation. You know me well enough. To know that that's not... Oh, Lester Olaf said this the best I ever heard. He had a way of doing that. He never preached a sermon that made any sense, but he could say stuff that just blew you away. His sermons have 800 points. None of them make sense, but he'd just say something that hits you through the eyes like a torpedo. And he said one time, talking about the eternal security of the believer, he said, what kind of life does God have? Does God ever die? No. Did God ever have a beginning? What kind of life does God have? Eternal. Eternal is the only kind of life God has. So when God gave you life, what kind of life did He give you? Eternal. It's the only kind He had to give. Ain't that simple? So I'm aware that God gave you eternal life, and we're sealed under the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of promise. But I believe that what Paul's saying here is that it's appropriate, if we've been born again in the Spirit of God, if that's how we started this thing, for us to continue to walk in obedience to the Spirit of God. When you got saved, this, this is how it happened. We're not trying to be redundant here, but the Spirit of God said, you're lost. And you said, okay, I agree. The Spirit of God said, Jesus Christ died for your sins. You said, okay, I believe that. The Spirit of God said, now, if you'll ask Him to forgive you and save you, He'll do it. And you said, okay, I'll do it. You got saved through obedience to the Spirit of God. That's why the book of Ephesians talks about us being uh, redeemed through obedience to the Spirit. Through the obedience of faith. Because when He revealed to us all these things, we said, yes, Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. And I'll do what you've asked me to do. I'll ask Christ to forgive me and save me. And so if that's how we started, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Let me say to you that I believe that this verse is very much a segue into chapter 6. I believe it belongs in chapter 5 because it's speaking of what is going to result from walking in the Spirit of God. We've talked about some things tonight that are very ethereal. Can I use that, that big fancy word? Very ethereal. We talked about some things tonight that are sort of uh, abstract at times. Some things that 
sometimes have to do with the inner workings of the heart and not the outer workings of our actions. But understand that just as it's about obedience to the Spirit and not abstinence from sin, obedience to the Spirit will produce abstinence from the sin. And if you're walking in the Spirit of God, it'll show. It'll show. It'll change the way that you live. What would change this world quicker than anything is for us to have a group of people that learn what it really is to walk in the power of the Holy Ghost. Every day. To not stray from it when they do stray to get immediately back to bow the knee again to the Holy Ghost, to bow the knee again to Jesus Christ, to give back the reins, and to say, Lord, whatever you'd ask me to do, I'll do it. And so, almost like a segue, as a breath into the next chapter, he speaks of our workings with one another. Let us not be desirous of vain glory. You know those that walk in the flesh are desirous of vain glory. You know what that means, don't you? Empty, that's what vain means. Empty, hollow, meaningless. And glory has to do with heaping honor upon yourself and attention upon yourself. And what it's saying here is those that are walking in the flesh, they're they're heaping hollow attention upon themselves. Everybody look at me and what I've done. But you know, funny thing about it, people that walk in the Spirit of God can tell folks that walk in, in the energy of the flesh. That's an empty glory. That's meaningless. That's fleeting. That's fading away. That's corrupting as the leaves do in the fall. That means nothing. Just as the leaves may have a glory as they change, we know that glory is short-lived. We don't tell anything by it. We don't put anything in it. We don't invest anything in it. We appreciate it for the moment, but only because we know it's fleeting and going. And oftentimes it's so in our dealings with one another. And the expectation of glory that we have, provoking one another. Boy, that's, we need to put that over the altar sometimes, don't we? We need to engrave that somewhere in the church sometimes, provoking one another. Walking in the flesh provokes one another. You know, I think it's not just talking about provoking in a negative way. Provoking does not always have a negative connotation. I believe this is negative, but I don't believe it's negative in the sense that we would expect it. I don't believe it's just saying provoking one another to immoral things. I believe what it means is there's this game that starts to be played when we walk in the flesh. Of me outdoing you and you outdoing me and me outdoing you. And what leads from that? Envying one another. Pretty soon wanting to see somebody else fall off their high horse so that you can mount up on it. Wanting to see someone else get tucked down a peg or two so that you look better. Oh, we're not going to get into that. We'll get into it next week.